welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Today joining me is Angela Lewis. Angela is the managing director of PSA Limited, which is a company that delivers training in crew resource management and post-incident support. In her previous life, she worked for 16 years in the Royal Navy's fleet air arm as an aircraft commander in the Seeking helicopters. So the, the grey helicopter that used to cut about the skies above Scotland. She spent most of her life at HMS Gannett, undertaking search and rescue duties. She's got an interest in the human effects of traumatic incidents and is trained in critical instrument stress management and trauma risk management and now works with all sorts of organisations, including Mountain Rescue, the National Air Traffic Services, EMRS or Scottstar, as well as the Ambulance Service. Angela, welcome. Thank you very much for coming on board. Oh, hi, Dave. Good to meet you. It's a pleasure. So I guess to kick off, how have you made this transition from flying helicopters and doing lots of stuff up in the air to looking at crew resource management and non-technical stuff? It was quite a natural jump, really, because they were all the things that we did to support us in operational flying and, and doing rescues. Some of the toughest conditions and some really difficult emotional situations we'd find ourselves in. And it was the support mechanisms we used there to keep us fit and well for our jobs. And I assumed everywhere else would have them. I assumed the NHS would have them. It would be a standard across the board in healthcare, at pre-hospital work, emergency services. And I was gobsmacked to find that it's not. And we're still working and fighting for people to put this and looking after each other after the difficult things we're asked to do on the agenda. I guess it's in addition to not having the, the services, it's, it seems to be something of a cultural difference as well. It is. You can see the, the cultures, certainly in, in my time. So I joined the Navy 20 years ago and we didn't talk about when we were feeling a bit low and when the job was hard. We just, you know, thought we were pulling ourselves together. And in actual fact, we were storing up problems. We were making the job harder than it needed to be. We would be more likely to make mistakes. And we know that the best way to look after either our patients or our clients is to look after ourselves first and foremost, and that's a hard sell to some organisations. It seems as though the, the culture, certainly within pre-hospital care, has always been to tough it out and yes, yeah, just kind of bury the stuff that is difficult and the bad jobs. Yes, it is. And it used to be we, we didn't talk about feeling low or being affected. It was a sign you know, the old, the bad old days, it was considered a sign of weakness, but now it's very much on people's agendas that if we don't look after our, our young people coming through who have different standards, different requirements, and look after ourselves, we all know our senior colleagues who haven't coped well when they've left difficult, demanding positions. So not only is there a legal responsibility to look after our people, but there's very much a moral one when we're asking them to do it. But the way we sell it to places is the fact that operationally we're better when we're, we're better cared for and looked after. It's interesting because you sort of implied there that it's not really a, a one size fits all and that some folk respond to different things in different ways. 
Yes, they do. And when you try and shoehorn something out of someone else's organisation, you know, sometimes you're better going back to the, the, the basics of it. Because some people want to talk, some people choose not to talk. It's about having different layers, different types of support for, it's not even necessarily a hierarchical thing, it's what people will choose to do. Some people like to be in and around, some people like to be taking time off and taking clean breaks from things. And we have to have almost a a menu of ways of supporting our colleagues because One of the best ways we can do it is by being with each other and being alongside and being in a a good culture which looks out for each other where nobody's afraid of the stigma of raising their hand and saying it's been difficult. And I have watched that change dramatically, I would say, in the last 10 years from pre-hospital work. And I suspect whilst this COVID pandemic is changing the way that we work, it's maybe an opportunity Oh, absolutely. I'm hearing very much at the moment people talking about the the post-COVID legacy. What do we want to hold on to? When we talk about normal reactions to difficult situations, one of the things that we talk about is people feeling fear. And that's something that's quite stigmatised. You know, we don't like to talk about being frightened. And you, you know yourself, in the last couple of months, fear has been at the front of a lot of agendas people are are raising it, they're discussing it, they're admitting to it, they're normalising it within these times. If that's something that we take forward, that we're not ashamed to admit how we're feeling, because that means other people can admit it within settings. So a lot of what you've talked about there seems to be very much on a kind of peer-to-peer basis. How does that work from, from kind of building up this network of support and this menu of options? It's almost like your foot soldiers and there are some, certainly within NHS Lanarkshire at the moment, we've been doing a lot of work training big numbers of people in one day peer support training, having better conversations and they work as our foot soldiers. They work towards changing the culture. It puts on the agenda, looking after each other and it means that people think about it more. So we can train people quickly and efficiently just to be upskilled on what they might already naturally be doing. The beauty of peer support is that it provides the link into other higher level professional services if needed. But for most people, they just need a safe place to chat stuff through with their colleagues. And what does it look like? So if one of your peer support trained folk gets involved in a chat. Is there anything Mm -hmm. particularly special or unique about that conversation? What we find we do is we build in people's skills that are already there and we train people and there's a standard Scottish thing where you would say, I ask them if they're good listeners and very few people admit to that, whereas they are good listeners, but we listen just for listening. In so many other aspects of our life, we listen to fix. You know, how often What do you do when you listen? You listen because you need the information. You need to do something with that information and come out with an outcome. And this is about shifting our listening to just being alongside someone and hearing them and not fixing. Just acknowledging, wow, that has been tough or rubbish times or, well, how are you getting on with that? Not putting our input, not telling our story, just being with them as as they talk about it being difficult. It's uh... (laughs) it's quite a difficult skill to have I think because so much of the medical training is emphasized on trawling through conversations to gather intelligence that you can then use to go on and fix the problem and we we very much have that mindset of of problem solving 
Yes, and I love training people with medical backgrounds because you know how skilled listeners they are, but they are listeners for a purpose. And this is about listening just for hearing. And I, I love seeing that challenge. And they try to eke towards fixing and then you have to tell them all for it. <laughs> so you talked about a kind of a, a one day course. Are they nationwide courses or is it sort of specialist stuff that's run through health boards? We've been running them through health boards in the last few months. And um, we, funny, we started in Lanarkshire training in anticipation of winter where they were putting together a peer support program. And we trained 70, maybe 90 people at that point for people to be around the hospital and to be just upskilled in conversations. In the last few months, we've trained many more within Lanarkshire. We've trained a huge number in Glasgow and in Ayrshire and Arden. And that sits as almost like a tier one level of support where it's people in the ground, people who don't want to talk to their line manager or a mental health professional or higher level. They just want to talk to their mate about what's going on. And this bit is difficult. And, and that's what we find many people would naturally want to do. So what we do instead is we we just empower them to tweak it and maybe make it a wee bit better and bring them in as part of a network for those conversations. Now, in your previous life, you've spent a lot of time around folk from Mountain Rescue, and they and pre-hospital care folk have got a lot of crossovers between them. Yeah. Our natural instinct is normally to go and sit in a pub with a pint and pick apart the job. Is <laughs> I, I can foresee some issues with this. Yes, it is. It's about finding balance. It's about one of the things that we want people to do after incidents is we want them to stay connected. We want them to try and choose better coping strategies than poor coping strategies. But I come from a, the Navy used to issue people with rum to keep them all nicely drunk. So I come from a service where drinking was a big part of our culture and keeping people together. And that's how we go through the difficult times. And we know that that just doesn't work in our society anymore. There are elements of it where it is a really powerful way of keeping people together. But if you think that's a long-term good coping strategy, then I'm afraid you're not right. And I guess one of the other problems with the nature of pre-hospital care work is that, particularly from a basics point of view, we're not really working in teams. We're working individually as a bolt-on to other services. Yes. And I guess you don't have that natural support mechanism around. Exactly. And it, sometimes it's about artificially manufacturing that. And I used to hear about you post really difficult mountain rescue jobs. Everyone, as you know, as you said, everyone would get together and they would go to the pub and they would talk through it. And these were the days where people would drive home after a couple of beers, but that was fine. And there was an end to the closure and that's how they worked. Nowadays, people come in from jobs and then they all leave early. They all head off to something else. So people don't sit and acknowledge that this one has been big or this one was different for me because I've got this going on in my life at home. So how do we check in on our colleagues after something, knowing that this has been difficult and knowing that this bit has been hard? And I just wanted to see how you're doing in the back. A lot of us, there's a very British thing that goes on where we look at it and it could be an awkward conversation, you know, and it's not really my business. And I don't want somebody to think that I'm nosy or I'm trying to get involved in stuff. And I'm sure someone else will catch it anyway. So we kind of turn our backs on conversations when actually the thing to be doing there is 
I'm going to drop you a text. When's good for a call? Fancy catching up for a socially distanced cup of tea or post the end of this week, a walk at more than two metres from each other? Because I just, I know you've had a lot on and I just wanted to see how you are. And when you go in with no agenda other than just looking out for someone, it surprises them to begin with and it just affords them a safe space. So basics in the past has worked with I guess sort of maybe more experienced responders across the various areas of Scotland, and they've been responsible for leaning in and, and sort of touching base after jobs that we know have been difficult. Yes. But I suppose it's sometimes not the obvious difficult jobs that catch you out. Uh, that's it. And very much over these last few months within hospital settings, people aren't talking about the virus. They're talking about shift systems and they're talking about who's annoying them and, you know, what's going on in their life and who they're worried with. So that the whole point of responding to somebody's trauma or their their critical incident is we may not see it because we don't carry their baggage and their lives and what's going on in the background. So some of them are very obvious that you can see from reading paperwork that that one wasn't nice and that would be difficult. It's about having a route for anybody to be able to pick up the phone and say, I just want to talk through this one. This one was difficult for me because this is going on in my background or these are my family circumstances and I don't think I responded so well. What I know from my military time is the most difficult thing to do in a a call out is to say no. Now's not good for me. I've got so much on my plate. You know, I might not be able to do a, a good job, especially when, you know, Maybe someone will be in distress for longer when they're waiting for someone coming from a a distance. But that can-do mentality, sometimes it can be of of harm to us. So if that's happened, how do we check in on them when perhaps it's not as obvious as you said? It's interesting. It's, I guess, with your crew resource management hat on, a lot of us find it quite difficult to look at the longer term and move away from short-term gains into long-term sustainable systems. Yes. And I used to think that a post-incident support system was quite a different side of, of skills to crew resource management. And they're not. They're so closely linked. What I tell people, whether I'm training in, in CRM or doing the post-incident work is, you know, of course I'll do it, but I'll do a bad job. Is that okay? And that's, you know, that's, quite threatening to us because well I'll just keep doing it and I'll just keep moving whereas this is about as as basics as you're part of a network there will be other people around and maybe this one is more long-term harm than good for just now and what you're dealing with. I'm sure you see that within hospital settings all the time that if we don't catch people early if we don't get them into the right level of help and the right level of support sometimes we lose them for a lot longer than we would want to. I guess it's that sort of investment that through the military, there has been a lot more awareness post Afghanistan, Iraq, of the long term benefits of this, I guess, fairly short term, fairly low level intervention. Yes, yes. The military found that there was great benefits from addressing support at a lower level before it goes on. And it's been happening for years and we were losing people at senior levels when they were leaving the service, they weren't doing well. I see many people, both military and pre-hospital, who are now at a point where they just they don't deal with things well anymore because we didn't catch them when we were in service. 
and we leave them to the end where they've got a whole bucket load of difficult things to unpack. That's hugely difficult to do. Yeah. So I guess going back to the kind of job number one, mm-hmm. and maybe at the end of the job having a bit of a chat, I want to try and unpick the difference between having that chat and debriefing. Yeah. I wanted to get your take on, on how they fit together. Having the chat kind of opens the door. That acknowledgement of this one was tricky and, you know, there could be a few bits from that and here are things that we do as an organisation to look out for people and these are the people you can talk to and it becomes your choice and you are empowered. I know very much for your responders who are by themselves and, you know, the the one-to-one conversation is going to be a really good tool for that. We find when we have groups of people who've all been through the same incident from the same viewpoint, a group critical incident stress debriefing can be really effective. And that's an amazing tool that we use a few days down the line when the shock has passed and they're beginning to start the processing of what's happened. And that's something that we, it's quite specialist training. There's quite an intense training course There's advanced training that we can do and that's about being able to safely support people as they they open up after a difficult job. It's like all of these things and very much at my level, it's not counselling, it's not therapy, I am not and never will be a psychologist. This is about low level psychological first aid that we provide. And one of the big challenges in in healthcare is because there's so many other types of debriefing and hot debriefs and cold debriefs and operational debriefs. When we have these conversations with people, our sole aim is for their benefit. It's not the good of the organisation. It's not for the learning and the human factors outcomes of things. It's solely for the good of the people that we're talking to. So we need to work really carefully to make sure we pick the right people who can safely provide that. Being on the sort of uh, the receiving and sometimes the instigating end of those hot debriefs and trying to pick over jobs whilst you're still stood at the roadside. Yeah. I normally try and do everything I can to avoid getting into into the emotions. Is that the right thing to do at that point? When you're when you're still there and you know everything's still right in front of you people are in shock people haven't started to process there is this incredible suit of armor you'll be familiar with that as a uniform that we put on and it protects us from things being sad or making us hurt or having emotional responses to things and that suit of armor stays in place until we get away and nobody can see us and what we find i used to find it at work and i used to you find it in hospitals is people cry in the car when they think nobody can see them, you know, before going home, I'll hold it together while I'm on a scene. So we are, we're very cautious about picking into you. You're very wise to be careful about going into emotions. At that point, people need to be reminded of basic things to do to look out for each other and to look out for themselves. And here is how we can support you if you need it. And that's a really good way to have that written down leaflets you know bits of paper look or if you can see it's a difficult one and you can see by the size of people's eyes then you know we should maybe get together in a few days and and see how we are after this and i know that's difficult some of the biggest challenges in this are the logistics but when a critical incident stress debriefing is planned and it's carried out by trained people it is extraordinarily powerful 
you mentioned there things that people can do you know whilst you're in your car and yes and feeling the kind of heavy emotion at the end of a job yeah what sort of things are you referring to there I like, well, you'll appreciate this with your organisation, I like basics, I like practical things. One of the things that we're finding, particularly over these last couple of months, is people are struggling with sleep and they are not staying hydrated. And anyone who's done any of my training will tell you that I'm an aggressive hydrator. So under all of these circumstances, I, here's water and yet here's more water for you. We know we're seeing that with our people wearing a lot of PPE just now that they're just not drinking enough water. So it's about all the things you would do. Think of all the things you do to look after a piece of kit and you take it out in a job and it's got grubby and you clean it and you, you, you know, does it need oiled and is it put away and it's safely looked after? And we kind of need to do that with ourselves. I know that's a really difficult ask when people have volunteered and have stepped out of their homes and they've left their lives and their jobs behind and then they go and do this and then they come back but I don't think the job is finished until you have looked at what you need and I know from many uh, many call outs through my time you you think you're fine and I'm really busy and I need to step into other things and we are rubbish at looking after ourselves so we need to we need to communicate to people when things have been difficult we need to try and get if we're struggling with sleep try and get some rest we need to keep drinking water i'm sorry to be a party pooper but even one drink interferes with your sleeping patterns and getting to good sleep one alcoholic drink iron brew is fine and we need to invest in ourselves and you've given us some links that we'll we'll attach to this podcast uh, for places that folk can go to to get a, a bit more detail on these recommendations yes I could talk to you for about two weeks now on the importance of sleep. And if you can change one thing in your life, see if you can get a bit more sleep. Because most of us don't and it affects everything about us, particularly when there's been something difficult. Sleep is one of the first things that goes and have a wee dig into it. Have a wee look about yourself. That The, the Sleep Council website's brilliant for tips. And if you are still struggling with sleep, you need to see someone about it. That concept of, of having your emotional kit that you've got to pack up and sort out at the end of a job, that resonates with me because I know full well that at the end of a job, I, you know, I, I will strip down my kit and clean it and pack it up. But having that same approach and concept to myself before I then switch off and go to bed, that's probably quite a, an achievable target. It doesn't take much for you to do something which becomes your routine. And we know that we... When, you know, when you're buzzing with adrenaline and you know there's no way you're going to sleep here, well, that might be the call for just now, but what do I have to shift for tomorrow if I'm not going to get to sleep? Do I have to set myself into a pre-sleeping routine of, you know, have a, have a bath, have an unwind, need to stay away from blue light? You have to make a focus of these things. As I was saying, let people know that this one's been difficult and I don't want to go into all the details of it, but I'm probably going to get in touch with the rest of the organisation just to talk about this one and invest even a fraction of the energy that we do in our inanimate objects and caring for them and putting them away and focus on unwinding ourselves. And we just have to make it a priority and put it on our agenda. That's really interesting. And it's something I think that we 
all of the organizations that I work in and alongside could definitely do better. The mindset is it seems to be changing. It feels like it's changing, but it's we're probably not quite there yet. Yep, there's a, still a long way to go on that. But the fact that we can talk about it now, I've been teaching about sleep for 10 years and you would talk about sleep hygiene and nobody would have a clue what it is. Whereas now we are much better educated. People look guilty when they tell me they don't sleep enough and they look guilty when they don't, you know, they admit to not drinking enough water and we know that we should be doing it. And it's not selfish to look after yourself. We've got a chat lined up with somebody from the Sleep Council in a few weeks, so hopefully we'll be able to dig into that a little bit more with them. I'll be tuning in to that one. <laughs> um, Angela, we've been asking all of our presenters to give us three top tips for folk to kind of take away. What would be your suggestions in terms of trying to maintain that? Self-care. Self-care is not selfish. I know it's a hard sell to families when you've left them, but self-care is, is so important. Routine is good, and particularly for people who don't have routine and like not having routine, routine for certain things takes less brain power. So routines for different bits that you do are, are good. And I think the most important thing within all of this is we have to keep an eye on our connections. So many of our connections are stripped away because we can't go to the pub and we can't meet our mates to play sport or to go for walks. So we have to make more of an effort to generate those connections because it's that social support that sees us through. Fantastic. Angela, that's brilliant and some really useful practical stuff that you know, we can all take away and, and all do better at. And we'll pop up these links that you've given us so that folk have got a, a place to go and, and dig into this a little bit more. Great. That's great. But there's so many places out there to help us. Sometimes when you're most in need of help, you can't see it. So just, you know, ask that awkward question to a mate that is probably okay, but, you know, have a cuppa, have a walk at social distance or, or just connect with someone. That's brilliant. And thanks very much for coming on to chat to us. I think I'd probably better go away and drink some water. Yes, it does make you thirsty talking about it, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Angela, thanks again. No bother. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland. Basic Scotland.